Welcome back to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. I'm Haley, and I wanted to say thank you for tuning in with us every Sunday as we transition to virtual in this uncertain time. Uh, We're really happy that we've been able to make content for you guys, even in this new environment, and look forward to connecting with you. Uh, We're still on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And as always, please reach out to us via email, flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Now this week, we're really excited to bring you an interview with one of GU Politics' fellows from the spring 2020 semester. We've got Robert Trainum. He is a respected political veteran who's worked in communications and marketing all over Washington, D.C., mainly on the Hill. He's worked at MSNBC, and currently he is the head of public affairs for Facebook in their Washington, D.C. office. He's had a lot of different positions in academia and public speaking, and we're really lucky to have him on the podcast today. Robert, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, We're now digital, so this is our first digital episode of Fly on the Wall, done over video conference. Um, And your career has a really interesting start. So before you even got to working in Congress, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into politics? Sure. And thank you for having me, Haley. I really appreciate it. It's always good to speak with you. So I would say a couple of things. You know, my first uh, foray into politics, really, I kind of stumbled upon it. I actually wanted to be a pre-med major. I was a pre-med major in uh, in college. And um, to make a long story short, uh, a college professor of mine uh, forwarded my resume over to the to the White House. This was the Clinton White House in the summer of 1993. And um, one thing led to another, and I got an internship uh, in the summer of 1993 working in the White House, uh, in the Clinton White House. And uh, I was actually in the pre-med office or the doctor's office of, of the president's team. And it was great. I was uh, making lots of photocopying. I was uh, running a lot of errands around the old executive office building. And then quite frankly, uh, my supervisor at the time thought that it would be best for me to transfer into another department, which uh, I thought was a demotion, uh, or actually I thought I was being fired. Uh, but the reality is, is that she saw something in me that I didn't see it myself in the time, and that was a, a unique interest in press, uh, in communications, and politics. And so she recommended that I be transferred over to the White House press office. And then, quite frankly, I moved over there, and I got the bug, and I've never looked back since. That's awesome. And um, now you've worked in all over politics as a staff member in Congress and really just running the gamut of all sorts of political things. So if you could go back to Congress, what was your favorite job and why would you go back to that one? So I would say two things to this. First of all, working uh, in Congress was like being a kid in a candy store. Intellectually, whatever, whatever you're interested in, whether it's public policy with medicine, public policy when it comes to infrastructure, public policy when it comes to nuclear proliferation, uh, taxes, welfare, whatever the case may be, if you're interested in that type of work, the sky's the limit for you in Congress because there's so many things that you could do because obviously Congress has oversight over almost everything in some way, shape, or form. And the job that I liked most was being a press secretary. I enjoyed um, speaking on the record to various reporters on, on, on a wide variety of topics. Um, there were some days when I was speaking to reporters about ag policy. Um, other times I was speaking about farm policy um, as it relates to banking reform, as it relates to international reform. And this really mirrored um, the interest of the person that I was working for at the time, Senator Rick Santorum, uh, because the state of Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from, and the state that he represented in the Senate was so is so diverse, 
um, he had a lot of diverse interests, and so did I. So being a press secretary allowed me the opportunity to be able to learn um, a little bit of everything. Uh, I had to be a subject matter expert uh, on a lot of different topics, which I enjoyed being. And so working in Congress, being a press secretary was probably um, the highlight of my career intellectually. Yeah, so what strategies did you use to talk to reporters all the time and answer those hard questions? So it depends on the reporter, and it also depends on the outlet, quite frankly. If I know that I'm speaking to a rural reporter, meaning a reporter that represents a rural part of the state or a rural part of the country, uh, I know that going into this, and so I'm going to use much more examples. I'm going to use a little bit more uh, outside the beltway language. Um, and then if it's, quite frankly, um, a reporter that's working for a large urban paper or international paper like the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Philadelphia Inquirer, my technique will be a little different uh, because I know that that reader probably is a little bit of uh, a little bit more informed, uh, for lack of a better term, just, just simply by the nature of where they live and, and what they're reading. And so I would use a different tactic with them. But um, my tactics um, universally are I always tell the truth. I try my best to present the best possible options um, on the record. And then off the record with a reporter, I'm not afraid to tell them, look, this is what we're thinking. Um, we don't have the answer to that question, or let me get back to you. Um, and I have found that the more transparent I am, the on more honest that I am with reporters, uh, frank quite frankly, the more vulnerable I am with reporters, the more they trust me, which um, by default, uh, establishes an even stronger relationship between myself and the reporter. That's a really good insight. And do you think that politics and maybe what side of the party aisle you were working for had anything to do with that relationship? And what were the dynamics there? You know, that's an interesting question. I like to think that my party affiliation um, and quite frankly, the reporter's party affiliation didn't really matter. What mattered was they had an answer uh, they, they needed an answer to a question, and then I was I was trying to do my best to answer that question. So that was one. Two, they had an objective, obviously, of trying to get me on the record to 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 advance their story, and I had an objective to um, try to get the right side of the story out, at least from my perspective. So I guess I would say is that it was a very unique honest, transparent relationship between the reporter and myself, and it always and still is. So I, I never looked at it from a partisan standpoint. I always looked at it from, this is what they need from me, and quite frankly, this is what I need from them. Yeah, and that, that's a noble way to look at it. So I appreciate that that's the way it goes. Um, do you have any memories working with uh, Senator Santorum or anyone else um, from your time in Congress? Yeah, I have so many memories, good and bad. Um, I would say probably the most significant, meaningful uh, memory that I have was the day of 9-11. Um, I was working in the Senate at that time. I was working in uh, Senator Santorum's office, and, and uh, I never forget this. Um, literally, the, um, the, the House Sergeant Arms Office, there's, a, there's a, a siren, or was, I don't know if it still is, but there was a siren that goes off that's, that's separate from a fire alarm. And um, it went off. And I've never heard that sound before, so I, I didn't even know what the sound was. Um, and then probably maybe about 20 or 30 seconds later, I remember hearing uh, the Capitol Police officers literally running down the hallway saying, um, ladies and gentlemen, evacuate the building now. This is not a drill. This is an emergency. And as we were grabbing our things, 
um, he was yelling down the hallway, ladies, take off your, your shoes, um, you know, run as fast as you can away from the Capitol. And that's all we heard is run away from the Capitol. And so that, that, that's all we knew. And so we ran as far away from the, pop, from the Capitol as we could. And we literally ran almost to the mall, um, to the foot of the Capitol. Um, and um, then we heard um, that uh, a plane had crashed into the Pentagon. And then we, so we looked westward um, and we saw the smoke billowing um, from the Pentagon. And then we heard that a car bomb had went off at the State Department, which was which was a, uh, um, a rumor at the time. And then we heard that a plane was literally en route to the U.S. Capitol. And so we were told to run even further away. Needless to say, there was a lot of chaos. There was a lot of rumors and innuendo. Um, and then the next day, I remember um, being a Senator Santorum at that time was a part of Senate leadership. And so there was uh, a part of the staff that had to go into the office to for continuity of government. And then um, from there, there was the um, the ricin scares. Um, and there was just so many other things that happened over the next couple of weeks in September and October of 2001 um, that I will always, always remember. Wow. And I don't even know uh, what it would be like to experience that. How did you kind of go back to working? I don't want to say business as usual, but adjusting to at that time, that new normal. Um, I would say that's a good question. Haley. I would say we had no other choice. It's kind of similar to, unfortunately, the, some of the times that we're experiencing now um, with uh, COVID-19, where it is a new normal and you, you have no other option but to survive and to cope and to improvise, to check in with your loved ones, um, to recognize this new normal. Um, and to, you have to accept it. There, there's no other choice but to accept it and trying to figure out your, your place in this new normal which is hard because not having gone through this before, it was really, really hard to try to figure out um, how do I respond um, to this new threat called Al-Qaeda going on an airline. And I candidly, I was afraid going on back on an airplane and, and not knowing if someone was going to rush the cockpit or not, um, not knowing walking down the street whether or not there was going to be a suicide bomber, not knowing um, whether or not um, someone was going to run up to us uh, and perhaps throw white powder in our face. I mean, this was a new normal, and it was scary. There's no question about it that it was scary. But the belief that everyone was in this together, the knowing that the government was trying to do the best that they could under the circumstances, knowing that I was a staffer um, in the third branch of government. You know, as you know, there's three branches of government that are co-equal. It's the executive branch, which is the White House, the judicial branch, which is the Supreme Court, and the legislative branch, which is where I work, knowing in a, in a very, very small way that I was a part of this continuity of government um, made me feel um, honored and privileged, but also made me really, really fortunate to, to, to think that I was working for um, a country and a government that was trying to protect people. I, I really, I felt a sense of um, belonging. Um, in no way, shape, or form was I our first responder, but I did feel like I was contributing in a, in a, in a really small way to making sure that Americans were kept safe. Wow, and um, you mentioned a little bit of the current events today with the coronavirus and response, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but just to go on with your career progression a little bit, just to ask you about working at MSNBC and getting your own TV show after all of that in the um, in Congress, what process did you go through to kind of get your own spotlight? 
Yeah, I wish I would say that I had a plan. I wish I would say that I would. I sat down at the dining room table and figured this all out. That's not true. What What really happened is I kind of stumbled upon it. Um, the one thing, the, the 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 feedback that I get often from family and from friends and from coworkers, that's pretty consistent. Is Robert, you're a thinker. Robert, you're creative. Robert, you're always thinking of new ideas. And candidly, Haley, some of those ideas are half baked. Some of those, um, some of those, um, th- those ideas are not are not the best, but, um, but I guess half of them are pretty good. And so, and so some of them are, um, uh, I guess pretty good where people say, Oh, you know, Robert, that's a good idea. Let's, 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 let's partner with roll call newspaper and let's try to perhaps maybe uh, do a television show or, you know what, you have, you have a nice point of view. Let's, uh, let's think about you going on MSNBC. So one thing led to another, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So once you had the show, what did you determine to talk about? What did you think was important to highlight or not bring up? Yeah, I, so it was, uh, one of the things that I was interested in not doing, I did not want to be a talking head show where a lot of people just opine about their thoughts. What I really wanted was a show where we could unpack uh, the politics, the people, and the personalities of Capitol Hill and truly uh, look at the human side uh, of politics. I wanted to have a conversation around okay, that's a lot of spin around X, Y, or Z, but let's really have a conversation around uh, uh, what this means for the average person. So that was my, my goal. And, and fortunately, we, we, we did some great work together. Awesome. And now you've found your way to Facebook, which is another you know, huge organization. Um, what is your current role now at Facebook and how does it fit in with your communications background? Yeah, thank you for asking. So it's it's uh, it's it's twofold. One, my job is really to think big thoughts, which I'm good at doing, <laughs> uh, for the company around big moments. So whether it's a privacy issue, whether it's um, one of our executive, whether that's Mr. Zuckerberg or Ms. Sandberg or someone else coming to Washington D.C., you know, what does that look like in terms of engaging with third-party groups, whether that's think tanks, whether that's members of Congress, whether that's other thought leaders, you know, what what can we do? Um, to make this engaging, whether that's a fireside chat, um, it perhaps could be um, uh, a keynote address at Georgetown University, which is what Mr. Zuckerberg did uh, last fall. Uh, perhaps maybe it's a unique podcast. Uh, perhaps maybe it's something different. So my job is to really connect um, the public policy things that we're doing on behalf of the company uh, to thought leaders here in D.C. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about coordinating um, Mark Zuckerberg's first major uh, address in public opinion or uh, public address? Well, there are a couple of things. So, you know, he's been doing this for quite some time. Um, so I've, I'm not the first one to come to him with this idea. Uh, but I, but it was my, you know, it was my creative thinking that perhaps maybe bring him to Georgetown for a, for a different conversation. And as you may remember, he came to Georgetown in October of 2019 to do two things. One, really just to have a conversation with students and with faculty in the room, but also too, he wanted to address, uh, and this is what he did in the beginning with his formal address, um, the, the challenges that technology companies face in the 21st century and some of the solutions around privacy, some of the solutions around encryption, some of the solutions around um, data portability that he has around this. And he wanted to have, and he wants to have a collective conversation with other thought leaders around, okay, here, here are the problems. So let's sit around the table and figure out the solutions. You know, this stuff is really hard around misinformation. This stuff is really hard about protecting the platforms around um, uh, election integrity. This stuff is really hard around privacy. Uh, I know that, and I don't have all the answers. So let's have some smart people in the room to try to come up with some of the solutions. 
For sure. And that does overlap with politics in many different ways. And what your discussion group this semester has been talking about is digital campaigning and how that actually influences how people vote. Where do you see that going now, um, now that the democratic field is kind of narrowed down a little bit more? You know, I think, look, every, every, um, every, election cycle sees uh, a more informed, more and more informed public. And these are people that um, Google a question. These are people that uh, uh, join Facebook groups that are like-minded like them to try to find answers to their questions. Uh, these are people that, uh, frankly, meet up uh, from town hall meetings to digital conversations. Um, and so we've seen a steady incline uh, of people that just said, you know what, I, I, I want an answer to my question. Where can I find that answer? And obviously, um, uh, we see a lot of people that are raising their hands and, and actively engaging uh, presidential candidates in this context around um, how are you going to solve this problem? And so what I guess what I'm saying is, is that in a good way, we're seeing a much more informed electorate that are doing their homework in their own way. And that's their right. That's their right to do their homework in their own, the way that they feel comfortable, whether that's asking their neighbors or their friends or, you know, doing their own research online, uh, perhaps going to the candidate's website and understanding what their what the positions are, whatever the topic might be. And uh, th that's a good thing, because the more informed the electorate is, hopefully, um, the more they're going to keep politicians uh, or aspiring politicians on their toes, which is exactly, in my view, what the founding fathers wanted or rather envisioned. Absolutely. But when it comes to Facebook uh, and how it impacts individual users, um, how do you make any kind of communications decisions that might change how someone uses your platform or recent issues with misinformation have come up with Facebook? How do you kind of address those? Well, there's a couple of ways that we address it. I think the, the, the big thing that we do is we have fact checkers all around the world. Um, where perhaps, and I don't want to use an example right here because any example I use can easily be taken out of context, but take any example that you want. Um, and probably the best example that I can think of that I don't think causes a lot of controversy is that I think most people can agree, Haley, that the world is round. Most people can, can agree to that. Although I'm sure there's some people out there that may think that the world is flat, and I, and I, I, don't, I don't agree with that, but I appreciate their point of view. So uh, assuming that the world is round and that there's scientific data and that there's, um, there's a lot of evidence to prove that the world is round, if you go on the platform and you believe uh, that the world is flat, we have fact checkers that would say, hmm, um, are you sure about that? Because and here are some links that, that can point you to the fact that the, that the world is round. So we're not forcing you to make a decision. We're not forcing you to, um, uh, to draw your own, but, but we are asking you to draw your own conclusions based on what we believe to be true, that the world is round. And so that's one example where we're trying to uh, gently remind people that we have fact checkers um, that, uh, that have done their own independent research that will at least put that in front of you where you can make the decision. Mm -hmm. So many of our listeners know that we've gone completely digital. I mentioned it earlier. Uh, and that's obviously changing the way we use technology with more work from home options and now study from home for us students uh, in the last few weeks. So what do you think those implications are, particularly with our current uh, si situation with the coronavirus on technology in the future? 
Well, you know, I think, unfortunately, you know, I, let me back up and say um, this is a really, really, really tough time for all humans all around the yeah. world. Um, really tough time. Um, but uh, I think the, the small silver lining in this is that for those who have technology or access to technology, it can be, I'm not saying that it is a substitute, but I'm saying that it can be um, some slight comfort for people to be able to connect with people whether that's checking in on someone that is shut in, whether that's checking in on loved ones that are thousands of miles away, you can actually physically see them via your camera. Um, and so, um, and, you know, for those who uh, perhaps maybe uh, have characteristics of isolation, um, technology can help you connect um, a little bit easier. Um, look, there's nothing, nothing that's going to substitute hugging your mom or holding the hand of a loved one. You know, that's, that, that, that physical touch is something that I think, I hope, that we will always need and want and cherish. But during times like this, when you can still see your loved one um, or check in with a loved one or um, have those virtual conversations, I think that, that, that can help a little bit. And, and, I, and I guess to your question, I, I would say that the silver lining in all this is that many, many more people are using technology in that way which hopefully is a little bit of comfort to them uh, during this difficult times. Absolutely, this is unprecedented and very difficult for pretty much everyone. So uh, thank you for making time for this interview uh, among all of the craziness that's going on. And we do have one last little segment that we like to do on Fly on the Wall called the lightning round. So sure. these are quick questions that are just whatever comes to the top of your head. So okay. I know we can't, we can't really travel right now, but we can hope. And I know you mentioned in your uh, bio that you love biking and kayaking. So if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would it be? Um, if I could travel, I would love to be able to go to the Amazon rainforest. I would love to be able to bike through the Amazon rainforest. I love photography. So biking through the rainforest and also stopping to take some amazing pictures would be on the top of my list. Awesome. And then uh, we're doing some more home cooking now. Uh, I know it's it's difficult, but you know, trying to be a little bit positive. Do you have a favorite home cooked meal? I do meatloaf, just old, good old fashioned meatloaf. Awesome. And then a lot of us know that Facebook owns Instagram. So if you had to pick one, Facebook or Instagram, which would you use more? Oh my, that's that's a tough one. That's a really really tough one. I would probably say Instagram because I love photography and pictures, but but Facebook is strong number two. <laughs> awesome, Robert. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Haley. Uh, be safe and healthy to you and your listeners out there and hope to see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. We're glad you could join us this week and we have our last episode of the season coming at you next Sunday, but we're probably going to have a summer season, so stay tuned. As always, make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod. Or if you have questions, comments, want to send us an email, flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.